All right, this is now the 11th lesson on our study of Presbyterianism. We have one more, uh, a 12th lesson next week, where we'll conclude the whole study of Presbyterianism in the modern setting. And this time, uh, I think things will be a bit, uh, a bit more controversial. Next time, I don't think so much, but... Uh, you can, you can see by what we have in the board, on the board, we're looking at uh, lessons or chapters 7 through 9, where he looks specifically at office in the church. Uh, and the reason it, it, it could be somewhat controversial is we're looking at the subjects of office, authority, but also gender. And the reason we're looking at gender is because in the 20th century um, and, and coming into the 21st century, so many of the debates about office have surrounded whether women can be officers, whether women can be, in the PCA, for instance, deacons. Uh, that really hasn't been a debate in the OPC, but uh, in other denominations in the mainline uh, churches, can, uh, can women be elders and, and pastors? In, in a mainline PCUSA church, it's required that women be elders. You cannot have a, a functioning session without women as elders. But then on the other side of it, let's say you have these old uh, school Presbyterian or uh, Orthodox Presbyterians, and the question is, why can't women be officers? Why can they not hold office? Uh, and and Daryl, I'm just summarizing his argument. It's very, in my opinion, it's a very good argument. Uh, and there were actually some portions of the book I wanted to read, but I left the book on my desk at home. But I think I can do well enough with my notes. I have extensive notes today, two pages, unlike my typical one page for Sunday school. So I think we have more than enough ground to cover here just with my notes. Um, but, uh, but too often, uh, if you look at the two sides of the debate, let's just look at the evangelical side, although increasingly they're being worn down. I think this article was written, this book is a collection of articles. I think that it was written something like 20 years ago. If you look at the modern evangelical scene, they're being worn down. But on this issue, but let, let's say that, let's pretend that the evangelicals were holding fast on male office and that uh, the, the progressive liberal wing of Protestantism had completely given up the issue. One of, what what Daryl says is that the modern uh, debate between those two uh, highlights differing views of uh, gender, uh, but it reveals, and, and of the home, but it reveals uh, at the same time uh, a lack or a deficient view of office. So really they're debating gender, but they're missing the real issue, and that's office, the nature of office. So that even when men hold office in the subordinationist camp, subordinationists would believe that women uh, are, are unable to hold ordained office, or when women attain it in the other camps, the progressive liberal camps, what is still lacking in both is a proper view of office. Both views, whether the evangelical wing or the progressive wing, both of them essentially end up with a view of office that is divested of true biblical authority. And uh, there's a phrase that's used for this idea of office, this is the irony that Daryl points out, whether you have lady ministers or male ministers in the evangelical camp, their view of what the office looks like is functionally equivalent 
And that is what? There's a phrase for it. It's, a very, it's like a buzzword today. Uh, it is servant ministry or servant leadership, which at first has a nice ring to it because, uh, because like Christ, we are to come to serve uh, and to lay down our lives for others. That's, that's the model of, of authority in the home and in the church. But what do you think might be the problem with that buzzword? What is missing in, uh, in, in a view of servant leadership that prevails in both camps? It, it, the word is on the board. Something is missing, authority. What they are doing effectively through, and this is the problem with every half-truth. It is a half-truth. What they're doing effectively is saying that the minister, whether he is a man or a woman, is to abase himself and he is to be... Uh, the servant of men, but he, but he holds, or she, no real authority, no real uh, definitive say in the lives of men and of the church. So, but if you go from office to gender, but you skip authority, then, uh, quite frankly, who cares? What is the point of even having the debate? Uh, we, we ought to begin, before we get to gender, we ought to begin with office and the nature of authority that it possesses. Daryl gives a great cultural analysis. Remember, as we stand today as modern Presbyterians, we do not, this is one of the problems, uh, the historical hubris of modern Protestants, is we just think that we just arrived on the scene, we, like a blank slate with our Bibles, and we're just figuring out afresh. If we could realize that we are today living as the result of, of uh, assumptions that have been carried out over centuries, and then we could maybe honestly evaluate those assumptions, then we might do well, and we could begin to think critically. Uh, so Daryl does a great job of this, of evaluating the modern situation. He says that subordinationist, again, think of your run-of-the-mill conservative evangelical. By the way, let me just say something to speak more broadly about what we're looking at today. We are looking at the societal conditions that prevail in America that have led to the irrelevance of the church. Okay, You may not agree with what I'm going to say today. I'm summarizing Daryl's arguments. I do agree with them. I think he's placing me on a trajectory that is very helpful because this is a question that I've had. Why is the church relegated to a place of irrelevance and seemingly only gaining relevance when she begins to function as the world does, which is precisely what we cannot do as Christ's disciples. Uh, but but there, are, there are conditions in society that have facilitated this. And the tragedy is that the church has embraced those and even promoted them. And so Daryl says that subordinationists have accepted, again, subordinationists mean that women cannot hold office in church, have accepted virtually all the premises of modernity and thus effectively making office unnecessary in the church. Now, what are those premises? There are two main premises, one of which is the autonomy of the individual, and, and the second is a distrust of authority, okay? The central peg in, in what, I, what I have on the board here. The autonomy of the individual and a distrust of authority. These are thoroughly modern ideas. These are also thoroughly American ideas. And thus, those who hold a real authority in the church, or anywhere for that matter, in the home, 
uh, and politics are held in suspicion. And if they are allowed to exist at all, they must be divested of all true authority, except, again, if you think of the idea of servant leadership, except insofar as they abase themselves as servants and as examples of godliness, but as no more. You think of the idea of the minister. This is such a common phrase. It's another catchphrase. I want to walk alongside you. The minister is only ever beside or below, but he's never standing above in an authoritative way. And that is, again, a thoroughly modern conception. This ignores very self-consciously, it is self-consciously rejection of older views of office and authority and also of ordination. The older view was that uh, a man... Uh, who was invested with authority through ordination, okay, not through popular appeal, but through ordination, had a real authority in the local community, uh, such that it was, it was seen as, uh, his words were seen as effectively the mouthpiece of God, uh, and, and, and also it was seen as a grievous sin to miss church. Uh, but, uh, but these things have been, have been done away with. These things were obviously abused in prior setting, but they have been effectively uh, rejected entirely in the modern setting. Uh, and so the older view, as I say, had, had a high view of the office, a high view of ordination, a high view of the ministry. And let's say that the man was fairly feeble as to his gifts. It didn't matter. He possessed the office. He possessed, uh, he possessed the, um, the calling of God and the recognition of the church. Uh, and, and it was seen as a great sin to, to raise your hand against the man of God. Uh, but that's not the view anymore. Uh, a minister, whether he's ordained or not, might easily be rejected in the modern setting. Uh, because his, his, uh, his authority is seen to reside solely in his popular appeal. I don't need to write that, but that's, that's the idea. Uh, and if he lacks that, then uh, perhaps... Uh, he might be safely ignored. Well, there's two developments that are to blame. There's a lot of ground to cover here, uh, but I I think we can do it. The first is the revivals of the 18th century and the War of Independence. And I think we could also add the revivals of the 19th century. But what happened as a result of this, again, we're looking at social and cultural conditions in America that led to the the modern irrelevance of the church. New views of leadership emerged, which I've been saying were based on popular appeal. If you think of uh, a man like George Whitfield, his his popularity was based upon not the fact that he was an ordained Anglican minister. It It was based upon simply the fact that he had this broad popular appeal. Uh, and, and in fact, in that setting, there were many lay preachers as well. So I, I, to be clear, I am a fan of George Whitfield. Uh, I'm a fan of the Puritans. But I think Daryl has had some useful criticisms of, of things uh, that occurred in history that have led perhaps to things that even these men would not have approved of. The second uh, historical factor was industrialization. Now, this is where I'm getting somewhat beyond my own, I wouldn't even use the word expertise, but, but something like that. This is an area where I'm certainly 
very much a student. But the effects of industrialization, modern industrialization upon humanity, moving away from an agrarian society to an industrial urban society. One of the results of this is that, and a lot of people have written on this, by the way, uh, and Daryl's kind of summarizing their points, is uh, that in, in the new urban progressive modern era, what has been lost is a sense of mystery, the mystery and wonder of the creation. You don't have to wonder at the mystery of creation when you can go to the grocery store and pick up your, your crops. But you might be a man of prayer if you're waiting for the rains to come so that you can eat. Uh, but a loss of mystery, but also human frailty. The one thing people never talk about today is death. Uh, it, 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 you would think as though uh, man thinks he will live forever. And so Daryl says that the modern man tends to distrust. I love the way he puts this. The, the prophet in the wilderness. In the wilderness. The John the Baptist. who are the, that's, that's typically saying of the minister. The minister is like the prophet in the wilderness who's there to remind you of those truths that the modern man has tried so hard to forget. Again, the element of mystery and human frailty. We're all going to die, and it might be sooner than you like. And so there are greater concerns that are confronting us every day, and those are the concerns of eternity. But if you remove man from that setting, then the question which the modern man has asked, at least implicitly, is who really has use for ministers anyways? What is the value of a minister in a modern industrial setting? In the modern setting, what you find, this is, again, I think just a brilliant cultural analysis. The minister has been relegated to the place of a spiritual and a social advisor and nothing more, which is why you find so many ministers embracing the social justice movement, because it would seem that's the only, uh, the only relevance they would have. Humanity being reduced to what? Class. And the only relevance of the minister would be speaking to issues of class and perhaps race. But to remind anyone of the eternal is precisely the heresy modern society will not allow. He is not there to remind anyone of the dangers of anything except, again, perhaps disparities of class. Matters of social justice, matters of this world, modern industrial concerns, in other words, but not matters of eternity. And for this reason, the minister himself jeopardizes his own place in society if he doesn't play along. And who is really willing to do that? And so uh, the whole situation mitigates against a faithful ministry. And, uh, and those who are willing to prosecute the older ways, the biblical ways, are relegated to a place of extreme irrelevance. And like I said in a prior lesson, if you really do that, uh, then, uh, then you've embraced the ways of the remnant. Well, that leads Daryl in the next chapter. There, was, there were some pages I wanted to read, and I apologize. Uh, there were a couple quotes uh, I think I've summarized his argument fairly well, but I, as I said, I left the book at home. Uh, but in the next chapter, he speaks of the keys of the kingdom. 
and how those keys are supposed to function in any setting, modern or ancient or postmodern. He speaks of the proliferation of ministries and bogey churches. I love that phrase. I had forgotten about that. I remember that, was, that created some interesting discussion in seminary. Uh, but a bogey, he said, ministry is like golf. He said, the more ministries you have, the more over par you are. Uh, but, uh, but that's not the modern view. The modern view is the more ministries you have, the stronger the church is. But Daryl says, par is four. <laughs> in a church, you get you get one. For, I think this is what he says. You get one for for the ministry of the word. You get two for the sacraments, and then you get you get uh, you get one more for uh, the keys and or church discipline, and that's par four. But anything beyond that, and you're a bogey church. And the more ministries you have, the more over par you are. And so, if you were to judge a church based upon that, uh, you might be running against the grain of modern assumptions. But he says there are three main reasons for this, that the bogey churches are actually, by modernized, the successful churches. And again, who doesn't want a church that is full? Uh, you know, I, I, would love, I would love to see more people in our church. But the big question is, how do you get them in there? And how much of your soul are you willing to give away to do that and the soul of the church? The three main reasons are this. He says, first, the loss of the doctrine of providence. One of the problems uh, with the fundamentalist controversy of the 20th century was uh, a preoccupation with the supernatural. And you can understand why that was. Because in the 20th century, the early, early 20th century, the very thing the liberals were giving away was the supernatural elements of Scripture. And they were only willing to accept that which was ordinary, that which was natural. So that even the, the resurrection of Jesus was described in naturalistic terms. And so the, the fundamentalists were arguing against this by stressing the importance of the supernatural. But Daryl argues that something was lost as a result of this. Again, perhaps we gave away more than we cared to give. And that was, uh, and that was a loss sense of any value of the ordinary in our efforts to combat the um, the liberals of the early 20th century. Second reason being uh, that what Paul calls, what, how does Paul describe the preaching in 1 Corinthians? There's a word he uses. Perhaps a modern man would not like so much, Dave. Foolishness. foolishness. Well, the modern man doesn't have much use for foolish means. The parallels between the first century and the 21st century are uh, very strong in this regard. The problem that the modern man has is that foolish means seem, well, foolish, even to the modern Christian. And so Daryl asks the question, and you smile, but this is, this is the kind of thing you find. Why not ice hockey ministry? Uh, why not? Now, try to argue with a pragmatist when he says, you know, people have been converted through an ice hockey ministry. And so why not an ice hockey ministry while you're over there in the OPC lucky to get 70 people in worship? We have thousands coming to our church. We have an ice hockey ministry. We have a, I, I don't know what else, we have a knitting ministry. Uh, go down the list. And the people just keep coming. And so that's how the argument goes. If people come 
does that not make the modern method effective? That's, that's the idea. And if the world regards the age-old tried-and-true fine wine of the church to be uh, foolishness, so that they do not come, or if they come, they do not stay. As I've pointed out recently, we've had two visiting families leave in the middle of the worship service. Amazing. Uh, it's discouraging to see that. But perhaps it all seemed too foolish to them. Does that not make it ineffective by the modern standards? But another word, and I've already used it, but another word used about these age-old means, the fine wine, the well-aged wine of the church, is not simply foolishness, but ordinary. And that, that means precisely what it seems to mean, that the ministry of the church will be thoroughly ordinary, ordinarily. Our confession speaks of the outward and ordinary means of grace, as opposed to what? You think of the, the converse of that, the inward and the extraordinary. That was something John Meather pointed out to me. The emphasis in the ministry of the church is upon the outward and the ordinary. And by the standards of modern accounting, that is the same as saying ineffective. If something is ordinary, it is therefore ineffective. Number three, I, need, I think I need to pick up the pace. I'm still on my first page. Uh, is that we've talked about this before as well, the reformed world and life view of kingdom work, popularized by Abraham Kuyper in the 19th century. And the reformed idea of the doctrine of vocation. The question that Daryl asks is, did we go too far? The idea that all work is kingdom work. The question that Daryl asks is, did we obscure the sacred and the secular distinction to such an extent that we made everything sacred? I think that's a valuable question as well. The Roman Catholics went too far, but did we go too far in the other direction? You always have to be careful about the dangers of an overreaction. Does every, if, 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 if the doctrine of vocation is upheld, does that make everything sacred? Does that make uh, the trash man's work as, I'm not going to say as valuable, it is as valuable in the eyes of God, but does it make it as sacred as the minister's work in exercising the keys of the kingdom. An example that I would give is that of Martin Lloyd-Jones, a man who left the medical profession to be a pastor. And according to the world and life view of, of so many of the reform, the question is, did he make a mistake? Was he assuming that God was calling him to something greater when really he wasn't, which is how he described his own sense of call? Or is there, can we say this as Protestants who have a healthy view of vocation, is there something special about the church and her ministry after all? Something that we might even call sacred. It is, as Daryl Hart says, the difference between being good and legitimate and being redemptive. Vocation is good and legitimate. It is not redemptive. And as soon as you make it redemptive, then you become the kind of cultural warrior that believes in the transformation of society. But perhaps... The church and her ministry, that is to say the keys of the kingdom, really are sacred after all, in a way that is redemptive, and in a way that you will not find in the vocations of this world. And perhaps if that is true, then uh, the officers of the church carry a real authority by Christ's command, an authority that you cannot find elsewhere in the world. The problem with the culture 
and the kingdoms of this world is that they can't be redeemed, and they're not meant to. What is meant to be redeemed are the elect and the ele- or Christian disciples, and those are who you find in the church. And the keys of the kingdom are meant for them. They are meant to bring in the true sons and to cast out the false sons. All right. Well, we are, as I said, we, we took eight weeks to do two chapters. Uh, so now we're, we're, we're going faster and we're doing three chapters a lesson. We're going to do two chapters next week. But this next one, uh, chapter nine, is uh, the most controversial, uh, but to me in many ways the most helpful. It was incredibly helpful. Again, we're asking the question uh, about, about or, or we're challenging the assumptions of modernity. Uh, but that is not to say that we always believe the inverse is automatically true, okay? So in challenging the church's contention that slavery was wrong, I am not saying that slavery is right, okay? I just want to say that right now. The same when I talk about women in the workplace. Uh, I, I, I am not saying that is wrong automatically. I am challenging, along with Daryl, the way that argument proceeded along uh, the lines of these modern uh, assumptions. And uh, if, if this is at all thought-provoking to you, then I would encourage you uh, to read his article. Unfortunately, I did look it up online. I cannot reproduce it. It is copyrighted, uh, and, and you can only find it in his book. The chapter is entitled Office, Gender, and Egalitarianism. And so this is a debate that has happened in the modern settings, beginning in the, in the 19th century up to the present, uh, and, and it, it has happened, let us see, within the church. The cultural conditions is not something about which the church has been silent. Office, gender, and egalitarianism. Again, our concern is office and the way the church has debated the issue. Going back to the 19th century when slavery was the issue in the days predating and following the Civil War, there was an alarming tendency. Again, let me say again, we are looking at the way the argument was made or the way the debate was made or had, there was an alarming tendency going back to the 19th century, and certainly the same is true today, to equate the freedom uh, by which Christ has set us free, in which we are meant to stand, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, with social equality, Christian liberty with social equality. Men and women, or blacks and whites, must be uh, slave and free, must be equal in society in every sense, and therefore in the church as well, or else, the argument went, the gospel has failed to take its full effect. Until we have a, few, a full social equality, uh, the gospel has failed to take its full effect. But what this misses, as Thornwell argued in the, in the 19th century, uh, admittedly as a defense against slavery, and that's not how I'm presenting this necessarily, uh, but... What this misses, and he, he definitely was right on this, is that the freedom which Christ gives the believer is something a slave might even enjoy. In fact, his slavery is no hindrance to his ability to enjoy uh, his, uh, his blood bought by his redeemer slavery. And so perhaps the freedom which Christ gives to the believer has nothing to do with social status. 
And what this tells us is that we have, that is, we Protestants since the 19th century and perhaps before, for a long time have been importing our modern sense of class warfare and class consciousness into our understanding of that freedom Christ has purchased for us and what it means for us to have equality before God. We do have equality before God as believers. But it is so hard to say that without meaning what the modern uh, person means by equality. We should understand that on purely scriptural terms rather than importing the modern ideas. And so we have, in effect, for a long time, conflated a modern understanding of class with our understanding of the gospel and its effects upon humanity. But what is worse, in arguing for these very things, we've actually sought to destroy the very foundations that make the gospel intelligible and effective. And this is where Daryl's Daryl's article was so thought-provoking and helpful. What are the foundations that make the gospel intelligible and effective? That's my language. That's not his. I'm just trying to summarize his argument. Well, it is a well-ordered society where the family and the church occupy a central role. The two pillars then being the family and the church. And these are the two institutions which are under the greatest attack and the two institutions which are increasingly in a modern setting becoming irrelevant. In a modern industrial society, it is not the family, it is not the church, it is not the community that that receives uh, the premium, but it is what? It's the individual. Going back to the first chapter, chapter 7, the individual. And in that setting, the modern idea is to view all individuals as consumers and as contributors to the GDP. And so if that is your prevailing paradigm, the great thing is to increase the national domestic product. The question can be asked, can women not contribute to this just as well as men? The answer is yes, if that's all you want out of life. But it will cost you more than you care to give if you are indeed a Christian. The family and the church will never thrive in this kind of setting because both, if they are well-ordered and functioning properly, which means, yes, there will be a presence of authority in both the church and the family. The problem is that that will actually get in the way of this. A church with a strong sense of authority, a family with a strong sense of authority, gets in the way of the modern consumer individual notion. And so what happens to the church in the modern setting? I've said this over and over again. The church increasingly becomes irrelevant. The church is fighting for a place in a setting where it has no place. Unless it totally accommodates not only its message, but its polity as well. Hence the idea of the servant leader. The irony, as I've stated already, is that many of the greatest defenders of these developments were Christians. And so perhaps Dabney and Thornwell, so hated today, weren't so off base in opposing them. It's easy to say, well, you know, they they defended slavery. But if you actually consider their arguments, perhaps they were more like prophets. That's what they read like today if you read them. And so who needs a mother to care for the children in the home or a pastor to look after a flock? when the state will happily provide these services. If only we will, we will all commit ourselves to be workers for the greater good of the higher gross domestic product. 
And in that sense, is industrial capitalism really that different than socialism? Where all is reduced to our collective output for the greater society. Where all are seen as workers rather than, you see the paradigm shift, all are seen as workers. Rather than as mothers, as fathers, as children, as pastors, as sheep. Everything is reduced by a single consideration to one common denominator, and that is all are workers, capable either of consuming or producing. Rather than viewing life, again, the paradigm shift is what we're looking at here, rather than viewing life as organized around local communities where God made differences in humanity to make those communities function properly, again, In a local community, everyone is not reduced to the individual, but the different people, God making these distinctions, have different roles. You have fathers, you have mothers, you have children, you have pastors, you have farmers, and so on. In that setting, the differences are important, and really the whole thing falls apart once you obliterate them. But to be clear... What we are talking about, again, is the place of authority. And authority only makes sense if you, if you make distinctions. You have those in authority and those under authority. But there's little place for authority and submission in the modern setting where all, again, is reduced to the individual. And all of the distinctions are abolished. And every individual is reduced to his or her functional output. And that is the sense in which Uh, Today, equality or egalitarianism is meant. It is an obliteration of the distinctions and the differences that God God has made and which, as I say, caused the local communities uh, formally to thrive. Now, what is the solution? This is just a cultural analysis that uh, Daryl is offering uh, based upon historical factors and the way that the church has gotten caught up in them and essentially argued for her own irrelevance. This is something you can give or take, okay? I'm not going to die on this hill. I think it's a good argument. Uh, I find it very compelling. But the bigger question that I have is, what is the solution? How is the church to regain her place in society? Well, the first thing, and, and by the way, perhaps that place will be as a remnant. We're just a little bit of salt and light off to the side the world barely notices but we just won't give that away no matter what. The first thing is let's get the gospel right. Let's stop conflating modern assumptions with the gospel, even if those modern assumptions are right. I'm I'm not even interested in that. The problem keeps coming back to the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of of God being conflated. Uh, Let's get the gospel right. Let's understand a true equality means that a woman, a man, a child, a slave, a white man, a black man, they all equally enjoy the liberty which Christ has purchased for him, period. And uh, the class warfare really uh, doesn't even come into the picture. That, that's very much the biblical argument. That doesn't mean that slavery is ideal. That's not even what we're talking about. Let's stop getting caught up in that argument for a little while. And let's just focus on the main thing. And that is, what does it mean 
uh, to say that a man who is born again enjoys a full liberty in Christ or a woman or even a slave. Does the gospel have to overturn slavery in order to prevail, in order to thrive? Effectively, that's what the argument became. I'll put it as, as, as starkly as this. The gospel has nothing to do with emancipating slaves or giving women a place in the workplace. The gospel is not the great apologetic for a progressive, industrial, and egalitarian society. It isn't. Let's focus on the gospel. That's my point. The second thing is let's focus on those institutions in which Christianity is designed to flourish. Namely, the home and the church. And let's see one of the primary roles of the church as strengthening families. That's the age-old view. Can we get back to that? Not creating good citizens who will be good workers uh, and who will tow the party line. The church has assumed too much of that. But let's, let's assume, this is a word I've used a little bit, but it actually came out a lot in that class, the spirituality of the church, which... I took in seminary. Let's assume more of that countercultural ethos. I, I think now is, is the time uh, more than ever. It, it's just impossible anymore to confuse Christianity with culture. The amazing thing is that people are still doing it. But here is a chance for us to seem distinct. This will require something that is painful, and that is some counterintuitive thinking by modern standard, standards. We will have to seem antiquated by modern standing standards and accept that there is such a thing, the great heresy, there is such a thing called authority. That is found not only in the state, it seems to be that's where the argument ends anymore today, but there is real authority in the home and there's real authority in the church. And out of this sense of authority, which means you have those in authority and those under authority, you have a well-ordered life that is pleasing to God because he's the one who designed it and he's the one who ordered it. And if we're willing to do this, perhaps we will understand why there's a real authority in the church and how it's supposed to function. But as I say, you have to get out of the modern way of thinking. You have to ask yourself some of the questions some of the older fathers were asking themselves. Why is there a church after all? And what is the place of the church in the local community? What is the contribution uh, that the church is providing to mankind? And so all of this in the end, as I say, was uh, an explanation of why the church lost her relevance. And it was her own doing. I have a saying, and that is... uh, Avoid the self-inflicted wounds, and yet so often (laughs) the greatest damage is done by ourselves. That's what I think we've done here. But but really, this is a defense uh, of the presence of a real authority in the church. But which only makes sense if you're willing to reject a lot of the modern assumptions that go hand in hand with modern living. But if we are willing to accept that, then perhaps the church is an institution will have far more relevance in the lives of the people who occupy it uh, than it does uh, presently today. Now, uh, the only thing I would say in conclusion is that this is my summary of Daryl's article. Uh, This is, again, chapter 9. 
office, gender, and egalitarianism. It actually had a different uh, title when he originally wrote it. These are all articles that he published for journals. I, I am summarizing the article. I, I, I am not, in my opinion, doing uh, it, it any justice. I, I was really struck by it and, and can only encourage you, if this is at all thought-provoking to you, positively or negatively, to try and get a hold of the book and read it for yourself. Because, again, the question, I, I'm repeating myself a lot here, but I want to be clear. What I'm asking is, what, what was it that led to the church's irrelevance in society today, seeing that in prior generations, seemingly the church occupied the place of the voice of God? And it, it really was an amazing and a rapid development. Uh, but, but here we are. And it's a question that we ought to ask. Uh, so uh, let, let us ask that question, uh, painful though it is. Uh, so there, 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 is, uh, there is a class for today. We have one more class.